Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the story of salvation that it proclaims. And may we rightly understand that story this day from this text in Exodus. Direct us in the truth by your spirit. May he give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand and perceive this your word. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Israel's crossing of the Red Sea is arguably one of the most iconic texts in all of the Bible. A story that captures our imaginations and one that stays with us from the earliest of of ages. I can remember being in Sunday school as a kid and I'm pretty sure my mom was teaching the class and we were learning about this story. And for part of the lesson, we learned the children's song, How Did Moses Cross the Red Sea? which answers the questions by asking, did he swim, did he sail, did he fly, did he walk, did he run? To which the answer is no, no, no. And then how did he get across? Well, God blew with his wind, puff, 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 puff. He blew just enough, 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 enough. And through the sea, God made a path. That's how he got across. But then another part of the lesson was a a cake pan of some kind uh, filled with maybe an inch or two of water. And each of us in the class was given an opportunity to blow as hard as we could to try to separate the water in the pan. Of course, none of us could do it, try as we might. Well, therefore, the miraculous nature of the Red Sea crossing and the amount of wind needed to part a sea was that much more amazing to us as children. And contrary to liberal scholars and even some relatively conservative evangelical scholars who want to say that the Red Sea should actually be called the Reed Sea or Sea of Reeds, and that the crossing took place in a marshy area with relatively shallow water, well, that, that just doesn't hold up when we look at the details of the text and what's portrayed in the story. See, we won't, don't want to fall into the tendency to explain the miraculous away as being some type of, of natural anomaly or, or you know, something that can just be explained away scientifically. There's some rather interesting archaeological evidence and documentation that the Red Sea crossing took place on the east side of what has become called uh, the Sinai Peninsula uh, through an an extension of uh, the sea uh, to the the northeast. uh, And it's modernly referred to the Gulf of Aqaba. And you can look at this if you have a map in the back of your Bibles at at some point, and you'll see how the the sea kind of juts up with these kind of two horns like this from from below. And this would then be, uh, if we understand this to be the case uh, and this arrangement, then that would place Mount Sinai in modern-day Saudi Arabia, where Midian was located in the ancient world, and what Paul calls Arabia in Galatians 4.25. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul seemed to know exactly where Mount Sinai was located. But running down, running down such uh, trails really isn't uh, the point this morning, as fun and as interesting as that can be, uh, since there's plenty for us to consider in these 38 verses as to the, the character of God and the salvation of His people and how, and how these verses direct our faith and life. Well, endeavoring to digest the text in some manageable chunks, let's begin with chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. And it was when Pharaoh sent out the people, and God did not lead them by the way of the land of Philistia, for it was near, for God said, lest the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. 
And God caused the people to turn around in the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea and arranged in fifths or ranks of five, ascended the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. So we're, we're back to the exodus out of Egypt and we hear some more details about what happened. And we're told that God didn't take Israel along the quickest route by the sea, which was about a four or five day journey to the land of the Philistines. Recall that the Philistines occupied the territory to the west of the land of Canaan. They were considered separate from the Canaanite tribe, so really Philistia wasn't part of the the promised land. Of course, you remember that the Philistines were related to the Egyptians, but the reason that God gives for not taking this route is because Israel's not ready for war. And they've been enslaved for about a 100 years and aren't ready to do any fighting, particularly against the Philistines who had more experience at war. Israel will have to fight at some point, as we well know, uh, but it's too soon. And God doesn't want the people to be presented with fighting the Philistines and then decide to do a 180 and return to Egypt. So God sends them into the wilderness, a southeasterly direction toward the Red Sea. But notice that they go out in fifths or ranks of five. Uh, the ESV reads equipped for battle. Uh, martial array is another uh, way of rendering it, perhaps. Uh, but the idea of equipped for battle, I think, is misleading since there's nothing to indicate that Israel is ready for battle at all, even as God has just said. Now, they're ascending out of Egypt in an organized fashion. Uh, and they're like um, any new recruits. They're learning to march. They're learning to walk in step. They're learning to move together in an organized way. Verses 19 to 22. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he caused the sons of Israel to solemnly take an oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you must cause to ascend my bones from this place. And they set out from Sukkot and encamped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh walked before their face by day in the pillar of the cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to walk by day and by night. And did not depart the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night before the face of the people. And the mention of Moses taking the bones of Joseph with him takes us back to the closing verses of Genesis. And what do we read there? And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely visit you and cause you to ascend from out of this land. And you will cause to ascend my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in an ark in Egypt. Some of the language is almost word for word. But how is Moses carrying Joseph's bones up out of Egypt? Well, in the ark that was made for, for them. That's interesting to think about. But the Israelites would be able to see this ark and, and they would know that Joseph's bones were in it. And what a testimony to Joseph's faith, even as great as he was in Egypt, that he didn't want his bones to remain there, but to go to the promised land. So there's an implicit lesson in that for Israel as well and the kind of faith that they should be demonstrating. So we get a couple of geographical notes regarding Sukkot and Etham. Uh, the location of the latter isn't certain. Um, but then in verses 21 and 22, without any introduction, we're told about the pillar of cloud and fire. It's probably best to understand that it was a single pillar of cloud and fire and that it looked like a cloud in the daytime and then you, you couldn't really see the fire on account of the sun shining. But then at night you could see the fire. We are probably also to understand that the cloud provided a measure of shade in the day uh, while in the wilderness and maybe some warmth at night by the fire. Some imagery we find in Isaiah chapter 4. 
Then Yahweh will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. See, in that language, Isaiah is borrowing from, from the Exodus and, and even the wilderness imagery. But the primary point in the text in, in, in Exodus is that Israel is being guided day and night by this pillar of cloud and fire. And what does the text specifically associate it with? Yahweh's presence. He walked before them in the pillar. Cloud and fire. That denotes Yahweh's presence. And it will appear again in Exodus on the top of Sinai and at the dedication of the tabernacle. But it's also here and it doesn't depart. Yahweh is there. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And spoke Yahweh to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and they are to turn back and encamp before the face of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and between the sea before the face of Baal-Zephon. Opposite of it, you will encamp beside the sea. And Pharaoh will say in regards to the sons of Israel, they are in confusion in the land. It is enclosed upon them, the wilderness. And I will strengthen the heart of Pharaoh, and he will pursue after them. And I will gain glory by Pharaoh and all his strength or all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I, Yahweh, did thus. So what are we given here as the reader? Well, we're given inside information. Yahweh tells Moses, and so he knows, and we as the reader know, uh, but apparently the sons of Israel aren't privy to this information. But basically, Yahweh tells Moses that he's setting a trap for Pharaoh. Israel looks like they're lost in the wilderness, as if they're actually the ones able to be trapped between the sea and Pharaoh's forces. But it's all a military ruse by Yahweh. And there's a sense that as the reader, we might have thought we were done with Egypt. You know, Pharaoh's clearly defeated. He sends out... Israel with children, cattle, spoils, and all, and the Egyptians are left to bury their dead. But you really get the sense that Yahweh isn't finished with Pharaoh yet. Because what's he going to do? Strengthen Pharaoh's heart yet again. It's that familiar term we've noted plenty of times before, often translated hardened. And for what two purposes? That Yahweh may gain glory and that the Egyptians know Yahweh did this. See, we're back to chapter 5, aren't we? And Pharaoh's claim not to know Yahweh. And so the plagues come upon Egypt. And certainly he and the Egyptians confess to know Yahweh to a degree by the end of the plagues. But the struggle is about to come to its ultimate climax. But what's the other purpose mentioned here? For Yahweh to gain glory. And we have to keep reading to find out how that's achieved, even though we already know. How's the glory gained? By utterly decimating Pharaoh and his army, by killing the enemy, Yahweh is glorified in that. But we're not there yet. So what's the next scene that moves the story along? Verses 5 through 9. And it was reported to the king of Egypt that fled the people and turned back the heart of Pharaoh and his servants to the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? For we have sent Israel out. Uh, we have sent out Israel from serving us. And he harnessed his chariot and his people he took with him. He took 600 chariots of choosing and all the chariots of Egypt and officers upon all. And Yahweh strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the sons of Israel, coming out by a raised hand. Now, what Yahweh said in verse 4 is coming to pass, even as the text uses the same words of the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart and his pursuing the people. 
Israel coming out by a raised hand is probably an allusion to Yahweh's delivering Israel through the plagues. Uh, the ESV reads defiantly, which is a way to understand the expression. The New King James reads with boldness, which is also possible, but I don't think neither quite neither of those quite captures the sense of it. The fact that a report is brought back to Pharaoh likely means he had soldiers or servants tracking the Israelites, or perhaps they passed certain military outposts and so news went back to the king. Nevertheless, you have the heart of Pharaoh and his servants turning back toward the people of Israel, and they come to their senses, so to speak, wondering why they ever let Israel go from being their slaves in the first place. Now, that might sound like next-level stupidity to us, given the utter desolation that surrounds them and all the funerals that are recently taking place. But they're undergoing a next-level hardening of heart and are stubborn in their sin as ever, accelerating to their destruction. And in this section, we begin to see and hear the emphasis upon Pharaoh and his chariot army. The text is clear to state his chariot was harnessed. It was made ready. And at least 600 other chariots were also made ready. Now, whether 600 was the total or his particular uh, select group, and then there were additional chariots isn't entirely clear. But 600 was still an impressive amount. And by my count, chariot in the singular or plural form is used 10 times in chapter 14. Interestingly enough, in Ezekiel 1, God's glory cloud is described in terms like a chariot. So there might be a subtle sense that there's a a showdown of chariots after a fashion. But a chariot army in the ancient world was the most powerful armed force, you know, the, the nuclear weapons of that time. A 600 chariot army coming down upon a people who were predominantly on foot and included women and children and who really had no real means for defending themselves was a recipe recipe for slaughter. Now, Granted, it seems from verse 5 that Pharaoh wants the Israelites back alive in order to return them to slavery. But a chariot army wouldn't have any problem catching up with a, a couple million people walking together. Well, that brings us to Israel's reaction in verses 10 through 12. And Pharaoh drew near and lifted up the sons of Israel their eyes, and behold, Egyptians were setting out after them, and they feared greatly, and cried out the sons of Israel to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, On account of no graves in Egypt, have you taken us to die in the wilderness? What is this you have done to cause us to come out of Egypt? Is this not the word which we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Stop from us, and let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been good, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." Israel expresses a complete lapse of faith here. And as a side note, uh, this is the first of, uh, first of ten such failures on Israel's part. So you have the, you know, the ten plagues against uh, Egypt, and then you'll have the ten failures of, of Israel, basically, in the wilderness. And after seeing so many acts of God in Egypt, Israel seems to have a short covenantal memory. And, of course, we'll express it again. But perhaps we can argue that their instincts are right in verse 10 to cry out to Yahweh. But then what do they basically tell Moses in verses 11 and 12? It's better to be a slave in Egypt than die a free man in the wilderness. And it really is a faithless thing to declare, particularly since Yahweh is with them. Verses 13 to 14. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, take a stand, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will do for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today... You shall never again see them again unto forever. Yahweh will battle for you and you will keep quiet. Basically, Moses is saying, don't be afraid, don't move, and don't talk 
and just watch what Yahweh is going to do. And appreciate how Yahweh is described. He's the one who is going to battle. He is the one who is going to make war. He's going to go to war against Pharaoh. Also, the Egyptians that the Israelites are seeing now, they'll never, ever see again. Still more, consider what's being portrayed here. Yahweh is the one who saves Israel. Israel doesn't save themselves. They have no part in defeating Pharaoh and his army. In other words, Israel's salvation is by grace alone, which is a fitting theme for this Reformation Sunday, isn't it? One of the solas of the Reformation that were saved by grace alone is demonstrated right here in the salvation that takes place at the Red Sea. Just as Israel did not participate in saving themselves, neither do we. We are passive in our redemption. Verses 15 to 18. And Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to set out. And you raise up your staff and stretch out your hand upon the sea and cleave it. And the sons of Israel will go in the midst of the sea on dry ground. And I, behold, I will strengthen the heart of the Egyptians. And they will go in after them. And I will gain glory over Pharaoh and all his strength, all his army his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I, Yahweh, have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Now, the rendering of the first part of verse 15 with Yahweh asking Moses, why do you cry out to me, seems to be uh, the best way to interpret the text, but it is a a bit challenging for us to understand what that then means. Uh, It sounds as if Yahweh is irritated with Moses because the you is singular, but it was Israel crying out to Yahweh back in verse 11. We're not told that Moses was. One scholar suggests rendering it, there is no need for you to cry out to me. So maybe that's the way to take it. Uh, To be perfectly honest, I'm just not sure what to make of this. But nevertheless, the instructions that follow are clear. So Moses is to instruct the Israelites to move out. And then echoing instructions before a number of the plagues, Moses is to to take his staff and and stretch out his hand. And Yahweh uh, clearly tells him to, to cleave the waters, to divide them. You may recall that before the ten plagues, there was the showdown between Aaron and the Egyptian priest magicians and how Aaron's rod swallowed up theirs, and that was the first miracle. Then came the ten plagues, and now this event at the Red Sea constitutes the twelfth. And so Moses employing his staff in this fashion should cause us rightly to, to make some subtle connections with these previous events. Moses is to instruct the sons of Israel to go into the midst of the sea on dry ground. This particular word for dry ground is hardly accidental. It's used again in verses 22 and 29. And it's a word that means dry, arid ground. Not moist, not damp, but completely dry. Significantly, it's also used in Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where we read, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so, and God called the dry ground earth, and the waters were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Well, what's going on here? But a separation at creation. Likewise, here at the Red Sea, another separation is taking place. Uh, Similarly, this term is used in Genesis 9, after the flood. We also have a bit of a refrain of information we've heard before, the strengthening of the Egyptians' hearts and their pursuit of Israel but also of Yahweh gaining glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and Egypt knowing Yahweh had done so. And we should should understand that the text is indicating that Pharaoh is going to die and does die in the Red Sea. 
this isn't the only hint of this in the story, and there are secondary sources which suggest that a pharaoh was the supreme commander of the armed forces, and if he was a vigorous ruler, would personally lead his army into battle. But even more, we have the poetic testimony of uh, Psalm 136.15. But... Um, about Yahweh, but overthrew Pharaoh and his strength, his army in the Red Sea. And the focus is on the Egyptians knowing that Yahweh has gained this glory over Pharaoh and his army, implying Pharaoh will be out of the picture. Verses 19 and 20. And set out the angel of God, the one walking in the face of the army camp of Israel, and walked from behind them, and set out the pillar of the cloud from before them, and stood behind them. And it went between the army camp of Egypt and the army camp of Israel, and it was the cloud and the darkness, and it gave light to the night and did not draw near one to the other all the night. Once again, the movement of the angel and the pillar are equated, and the text is indicating that the pillar moved between the two camps, blocking the Egyptians from the Israelites, as it were. Verses 21 to 25. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh caused to walk the sea by a strong east wind all the night, and he set the sea to dry land and cleaved the waters and went the sons of Israel into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters to them a wall on the right and on the left and the Egyptians pursued and entered after them all the horses of Pharaoh his chariots and his horsemen into the midst of the sea and it was in the watch of the morning and Yahweh looked down upon the army camp of the Egyptians in the pillar of fire and cloud and moved noisily or confused the army encampment of the Egyptians. And he turned aside the wheels of his chariots, and they drove in difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before the face of Israel, for Yahweh makes battle. Yahweh fights for them against Egypt. Now, a few things to note. Moses obeys Yahweh and stretches out his hand over the sea, and then Yahweh brings about a strong east wind. Well, where have we encountered a strong east wind before? with the eighth plague of locusts. And we noted that to come, from, uh, to come from the east is to come from the promised land, to come from Yahweh's throne, so to speak, and that's similar imagery here. And if it's an east wind, then it's blowing from east to west, which means the waters form walls to the north and south. And so Israel travels through the sea on dry ground with waters above and waters below after a fashion. Again, echoing the creation account. See, figuratively, a case can be made that Israel is in position, is positioned in the firmament, in the heavenlies. And you can compare this with what we read in Genesis 1, verses 6 through 8. So Israel proceeds through the sea, and Egypt comes after them in hot pursuit. But then Yahweh looks down from the pillar of cloud and fire and moves noisily or confuses the Egyptians. And verse 25 may indicate that Yahweh miraculously uh, miraculously cause the chariot wheels to fall off. Um, that's possible. It could also be uh, that we're to understand that Yahweh unleashes a thunderstorm against Pharaoh and his chariots and that the once dry ground is becoming muddy again, making it difficult for them to drive. And, you know, if you have a flash flood all of a sudden, if a flash flood can move vehicles today, it can certainly move chariots and horses in the ancient world. And then they could be uh, sliding into one another, crashing into one another. And then they still have these two ominous walls of water on the right and the left. 
In Psalm 77, 16 to 20, a poetic recounting of Israel's redemption, Asaph declares, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And that sounds quite a bit like a severe thunderstorm. Uh, And then when we compare uh, the defeat of Pharaoh's chariot army with the defeat of Sisera's iron chariot army in Judges 4 via a thunderstorm from Yahweh, then maybe we're right to have a similar understanding here. What's more, you have the recounting of the deliverance in Judges 4 and then what's in chapter 5, the song of Deborah. Here you have in chapter 14, you have Israel's redemption. And what's next in chapter 15, the song of Moses celebrating the victory. Well, what realization do the Egyptians come to? Let's flee. Yahweh makes war. Yahweh fights for Israel. Echoing Moses' words to Israel back in verse 14. You know, they're turning around and heading west, trying to go back to Egypt. But then what do we read in verses 26 to 29? And Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and may return the waters upon Egypt, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And stretched forth Moses his hand upon the sea, and returned the sea when morning appeared to its constant flowing. And Yahweh shook off Egypt in the midst of the sea and returned the waters and covered the chariots and the horsemen to all the strength of Pharaoh. Having gone after them into the sea, not remained of them even one. And the sons of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea and the waters to them a wall on their right and on their left. You can just, you can just see it in your imagination. Moses obeys Yahweh's command, stretches out his hand, likely with his staff in it, over the sea, and the walls come crashing in upon Pharaoh and his chariot army, completely drowning them. Further proof, this wasn't some marshy, shallow area. And the text is clear that all of the Egyptian army perishes, not remained of them even one. And there's a bit of an interesting wordplay going on here in a sense. The, The word for Egypt can also be rendered Egyptians. And the context bears out how it should be translated. And a pretty good case can be made for translating a number of references thus far to the Egyptians as Egypt. But it seems especially appropriate to make that distinction here. Portraying Egypt in a personified way, even as a character, and how Yahweh's victory over all of Egypt is complete. And then notice the clear contrast uh, that's recounted. Uh, as it's recounted, Pharaoh and all his chariots and, and horsemen are drowned. But then what's repeated about the sons of Israel? That they walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea and the waters to them a wall on their right and on their left. See, as the reader, you don't really need to know that since it was already mentioned just a few verses ago. And Israel is already on the other side. But it's here for emphasis to testify yet again to Israel's salvation through the sea. And note the subtle contrast that's being portrayed here. The waters that were judgment for Egypt were salvation for Israel. And then finally, verses 30 to 31. And Yahweh saved in that day Israel from the hand of Egypt. And Israel saw Egypt or saw the Egyptians being dead upon the lip of the sea. And Israel saw the hand, the great one, which Yahweh did against Egypt. 
And the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in Moses, his servant. So the declaration of salvation is clearly made. And Israel was delivered from the hand, from the power of Egypt once and for all, by the great hand of Yahweh. You know, Pharaoh's dead. Uh, the divorce is final, and he can't come after Israel anymore. And Yahweh made sure of that by demonstrating his power by his hand, even through the hand of Moses. And there was tangible proof lying on the seashore. Dead Egyptian bodies, which likely the Israelites plundered, thus despoiling Egypt for a second time without having to do any fighting. It was Yahweh who fought for them, who made war upon their enemy and who redeemed them. Two times the text is clear to say that Israel saw. What did they see with their eyes? Dead Egyptians. What else? The great hand of Yahweh. The miracle he performed against Egypt, destroying the army in the sea. Well, this, this text is simply packed, and we, we may come back to it again uh, next week. But what are, what are some observations upon which we can further expand? Well, as already noted, we don't participate in our salvation. We don't save ourselves. As those who are dead in our trespasses and sins, we do not self-resuscitate. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love, has made us alive together with Christ. It is by God's power, by His hand, by Christ the greater Moses, by His hand we have deliverance, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. As Pharaoh and his chariots were swallowed up in the Red Sea, so death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what appeared to be a complete disaster in going into the wilderness, and what appeared to be a colossal mistake, ensuring defeat, surely Christ going to the cross looked much the same, even as his disciples protested beforehand. Obedience seemed to be folly, but the trap was being set for Satan, sin, and death. As one scholar puts it, at the very darkest moment, when all hope seems lost and following the path of God appears to have been hopeless, hopeless folly, the power of God breaks through from heaven, destroys his enemies, and brings his own people safely to a new shore. Well, isn't that the case on Resurrection Sunday? At the morning watch, at the break of day, at dawn, the deliverance was evident, the salvation secured, and the enemy destroyed. And this being true, and having the reminder of this reality, week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, then let us not be like the Israelites and be sure to guard against having short covenantal memories. And look at what Christ has done, not only in the all-decisive moment in the resurrection, or even more in his ascension and then subsequent sending of the Spirit ten days later. But also consider roughly 2,000 years since of God's faithfulness to his promises, of his continuing to bring his purposes to pass for the church and the world. And what better day to pause and consider this truth again than Reformation Sunday or next week with all saints, considering those who have gone before us in the faith. Christ hasn't failed in the past, and he's not failing now. And we shouldn't despair in the present simply because things seem bleak or the odds seem stacked against us or because the church is being so intensely persecuted in so many different parts of the world. 
No, we look to the Scriptures, we consider God's Word, which makes us wise unto salvation and trains us in righteousness, and we consider His promises and what He said He will do and what we're then called to do in light of His saving grace to us. And we move on in faithful obedience. Well, we can also look at all the history of the church and God's working in the world since A.D. 70. That should also help us to guard against having faulty covenantal memories. But then lastly, let's be sure to see the God, our God, our Savior, who is glorified by defeating His and our enemies. Now that brings Him glory that makes Him even more weighty. And because this is who our God and Savior is, because this is His character, this is what He's like. And surely we can be all the more bold to pray for enemies to fall, for the opposition to perish, that God might be glorified and his people delivered from tyrants and oppression. Of course, what that looks like might not be as dramatic as what we find in Exodus. As one writer puts it, from the standpoint of what happened to Egypt, we see what happens to a people who resist and reject God. Any people who turn from God may go through similar steps. A foolish disregard for the justice of God, an increase in sin, a loss of all common sense, a time of terror, and then ruin. Maybe that's a description of our nation at present, or even others around the world. And while that can look and feel discouraging from one vantage point, from another it can be the evidence that the enemies of Christ and His church are on the brink of collapse or on the verge of defeat. And so we pray, so we sing, especially the Psalms. You know, we, we take up the war songs of the Prince of Peace, recounting his great deeds in faithfulness to his promises, with the expectation that, consistent with his character, he will be so honored and glorified to do so in the present and in the future. And so therefore, let's, let's raise our voices. Let us praise our God for the great salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the lesser salvations he has rendered. Now behold how, how Moses, how Israel crossed the Red Sea. And behold the Egyptian corpse, corpses upon the shore. And unashamedly declare, Sola Dei Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and the vivid way in which it is written. We thank you that it is for us life and strength. And we pray that we would uh, be nourished deeply and fed deeply by your word this day. That we would partake richly of the goodness that is your word. Indeed, may it be uh, sweet to us and be a, a delicious savor to our souls. Help us for these things, direct us in faith, and in greater faithfulness unto you, we humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen.